We're in the midst of our series, Descending into Greatness. We've been talking about pride and humility. Um, if you've missed any of it, we'll have uh, the whole series uh, online uh, by the end of day tomorrow, including this morning's message. We're talking about pride and talking about the dangers of unchecked pride and, and how it can lead us down so many difficult paths. It can give birth to so much other garbage in our lives and how to counter that with humility. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage um, that talks about justice mercy, and humility. Uh, recently, we stopped by a library that was, had, had a book sale going on, and we stopped in with the kids, and we're walking around. And, and I noticed these all-too-familiar yellow books with like black kind of uh, lines on it, lettering. It was Cliff Notes. Are you familiar with Cliff Notes? Um, I, I was fairly familiar with Cliff Notes. In high school, I wasn't a very fast reader. And it, it, it's, it's a little trick you can do this. I said I, I, wa- I wasn't a very fast reader, which implies that I am now, which isn't true. Um, but I wasn't a very fast reader, and so we'd be reading a book in class, and, and I wouldn't be where everyone else was. And I would fall behind. And you mix that with the fact that I refused to jump ahead. Even though I know that like, the next day the class would be talking about chapter 3 and 4, I refused to skip chapter 2 because I'm just weird like that. And so all of a sudden, the, the, the class would be done with the book, and I'm only a third of the way through. And so between classroom discussion, the third of the book I had read, and my good friend Cliff Notes, I was able to put together pretty decent reports and, and, and you know, do all right on tests uh, and whatnot. But so Cliff Notes became my friend. I, I, it was something I was familiar with. And so just that kind of you know, trip down memory lane, I, I want to do you a favor this morning. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes to this morning's message. Okay? So if you're already like, feeling like, man, it's been a long weekend, I'm tired, I'm not sure if I can keep my eyes open, it's warm in here and all that kind of stuff, I'm going to give you the, the goods right off the bat. You can jot it down and then, you know, well, we'll see what happens after that. But here's the Cliff Notes for this morning. Three points. If you're a note taker, start now. Do justice. Do justice. You could phrase it another way, act justly. Do justice. Love mercy. I can say love kindness, love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Do justice is to do right in your own actions, the things that you do, and to do right in your actions as they affect others, as others are due. This is where we base this on God's standards of how people deserve to be treated, not our own. To love mercy is to love others with a steadfastness, regardless of their actions or attitude. The, the mercy that, that's being referred to here is where we love others, it, it has more to do with our decision to love than anything else they're doing. And then to walk humbly is to move from a self-centered life, a prideful life, to a humble life that's God-focused and God-centered as we grow in our relationship with Him. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Just kidding. We can still pray. Let's pray. Father God, you are an amazing God. We thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for this time together. Uh, as we dig into your word here, Father God, as we look at Micah chapter 6a, I pray that uh, you would just bring truth uh, to our minds and to our hearts, Father God, that you would soften our hearts, uh, that you would help us to hear from you, and that we would truly experience you, Lord Jesus. Fill this place, fill us with your Holy Spirit, and help us to grow as we seek to know you more and take our next step with you, Jesus. We offer ourselves to you in your name. Amen. 
Well, these three calls to action have become a very popular verse in, in Christian culture. Micah 6.8 is the verse uh, where, where they come from. It can be found on mugs. It can be found on, on uh, doormats. It can be found on signs and decor you can hang in your house. Uh, this is actually one that, that the Erickson household has up over the fireplace. Uh, it has just these three statements. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. It's kind of similar to uh, Matthew 22 or Mark 12. You see the greatest commandment. Jesus questioned about the greatest commandment. He says, it's to love God. And he offers a second. He says, and to love others. So this love God, love others verse is a very popular one. Uh, Dave uh, stole some of my thunder in sharing Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, these are some common verses that you see uh, in just kind of Christian culture. And I have nothing against putting Bible verses all over things and in our homes and that kind of thing. It actually fulfills uh, another verse. Deuteronomy 6, uh, 5 through 9, is referred to as uh, the Shema. It's, it's hear, O Israel. This is kind of their, their call uh, to this is what we're about, the people of God, Israel. And it says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Uh, the Jews actually developed these, these prayer boxes where they'd put scriptures in them and they'd have a prayer ritual they'd go through where they would put one on their forehead and one on their arm that kind of points to their heart. It was kind of trying to live this out, this keeping God's word on your mind and on, on your heart and uh, just having God's word all over the place. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. If you're looking for any design ideas, just bust open to your favorite passage and start writing on your walls or wherever you're looking to design. But you see there's this, there's this call to have God's word all over the place. It's not a bad thing. The caution is this, though. Sometimes we can stop seeing what becomes common. We can stop seeing what's always there. Uh, one of the things I always love to talk about, you know, if we just had a, a transition with our children's ministry. We have five ladies who, who run our children's ministry and do a fantastic job in uh, those different roles. It's our, our core team, we call it. Uh, it's a three-year commitment. We just had uh, a transition where a new lady stepped into one of those roles, and she was kind of sharing different things that she was seeing and experienced, like, hey, what about this, or why do you guys do that? And it was almost hesitant to share some of those things. I said, no, no, we need to hear from you because you have the freshest eyes in the room. You're seeing all this stuff afresh. You're seeing it differently. We've been in this mode and seeing this stuff again and again and again. We need those fresh eyes. And it's like one of those things. Once you, once you get used to something, it's easy to kind of glaze over it. It's easy to miss it. I'm not saying that that's what we're always doing, but if you have your favorite mug that's got Philippians 4.13 on it, and every morning, you need, I don't know if I can get through this day, and maybe at one point, like, hey, yeah, 4.13, I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, and now she's like, hey, I'm out of coffee. You know, you look and get more, and you, you totally forget the fact that it has that verse on the mug. Sometimes a mug becomes just a mug, and a wall hanging becomes just something on your wall, and a T-shirt becomes just a T-shirt. We can surround ourselves with religious things and yet not be impacted in any way at times. You can say things like, well, I went to church and I stayed awake for most of it, um, but maybe you truly weren't engaged. You can say, hey, I got one of those bumper stickers, honk if you love Jesus, text if you want to see him. Um, you know, I, I, I talk about Jesus with, through, through my bumper stickers. You, you can say, hey, I have, a, I have a picture of American Jesus in my office. That people can see and say, well, what's American Jesus? You know, the one where he's in the white robe and it's a, a white man and, and he's got the, the long flowy hair and the manicured beard and he's holding dinner. I mean, he's, he's holding a lamb. Um, and it's just kind of one of those things going on. Uh, those, those kind of traditional ones we see in the States. If, if you're, you're kind of curious what I'm talking about, Jesus was not American. Let's just clarify that. <laughs> 
We say, I have a picture of Jesus at my office or a cross or something like that. I have these places where I have religious things around me, and, and, and right, I mean, that's good stuff, right? Yeah, in and of itself, it's not bad. But sometimes I think in life we can have the look of religion but just end up empty inside. Where we don't engage what we're surrounding ourselves with our heart and with our mind. One of my favorite bits of advice around the Christmas season, if you do this, please, I'd love to hear the story of how it turned out, but... Uh, my favorite bits of advice is that when you're wrapping presents for friends and family and you got the tree set up and you get them all into the tree, uh, wrap a few extra empty boxes. And if you got little ones in the house and they start to misbehave, you say, all right, you, 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 this is how you want to act. You just grab one of the presents and you throw it in the fireplace. See how they respond. I'm just kidding. You don't really do that. It's just... But you have this present that looks like it's something amazing, but it's just, it's just empty inside. There's nothing to it. It's just a box with pretty wrapping paper. And if we, if we disengage from these things that we surround ourselves with, sometimes they can end up like that. Where it looks like pretty things that we can surround ourselves with, but we're not engaged. See, this is what happened in Micah's day. The people of God, their faith became rope, became autopilot, became, okay, what are the things that we need to do as the people of God and let's get them done so we can get on with the rest of our lives. Kind of became their approach to life. They had a, a temple in their presence, so they would go to offer, uh, make sacrifices and offerings to God according to the law. But it was simply checking off a box as they lived their own way, not God's. You can look at the history. It was actually at this point a divided nation. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You look at how they lived, and while they were still doing some of these things uh, that, that the law would call them to do, there's many that they weren't. Many ways in which they're, they're going their own way. Their pride and said, hey, we don't need God in these areas. We, we can go and do our own thing. We can figure it out ourselves. We don't need God. They weren't following God, but they carried the mark of God's people. If you read through Micah, you get a, a picture of what was going on. Leaders and, and the wealthy uh, were becoming wealthy or more wealthy through theft, through bribery, through rigging the system so that it would benefit them. On the other side, so it was the poor and the needy who were overlooked and used to the benefit of the wealthy and the powerful. And what's interesting is I was thinking about this. We kind of face similar challenges still today. In America, uh, on the American countryside, in our cities, there's churches throughout, and, and many, many even in those churches um, yet, yet aren't fully engaged with who God is. Maybe it's something that they do and say, oh, I just was raised to go to church on Sundays, or I was just, this is just what I do. And, 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 but... It hasn't fully grasped their heart. It has an image of being religious, but when it comes to the rest of our weeks, the rest of our days, we're just kind of doing our, our own plan, our own desires. Our country is a divided nation. Uh, some would, would still consider us a, a Christian nation, and yet uh, we, as a whole, I think a majority puts more hope in, in ourselves or in our government instead of putting our hope towards God. These are generalities. I'm just saying, but just, we, we get caught up in, in sometimes just this image of looking a certain way. I think we could all think of stories where we see pictures of our leaders and our communities and the wealthy gaining more power and more wealth through shady and rigged practices. And it's the poor and the needy who are hardest hit. So I think the words of Micah speak as true today as they did when he first wrote them. Micah saw what was happening to the people of God, and, and throughout his, his book, we, we see two things that he comes back and forth to. He's, he gives warnings. Hey, if you continue down this path, here's what's coming. But then he gives hope. 
Here's who our God is and what he's promised us. And he gives another warning and more hope, and he kind of goes back and forth in this pattern. He warns that the Syrian Empire will come and will overthrow the north and then the south, and Babylon will even come after them. But there is rescue and redemption found in God. He is a God who saves his people. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open up to Micah chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Micah chapter 6. If you want to turn one on, we have free Wi-Fi in the building. If you need to download one, uh, we always encourage you versions, a great uh, app. Uh, it just has a, a great way of getting God's Word in front of you. Uh, if you need a Bible as well, take one of the ones that we have, make it your own. Or if you know someone that needs one, take one and, and, and pass it along. But what's going on here in Micah chapter 6 is God's having one of those moments, like, you know, when, when mom walks in the room and the kids have been left to their own device for a while, and, and you walk in and you see the mess that's transpired, and, and, and instead of calling them out, mom has one of those moments of, what, what have I done to you that you would treat me like this, right? What, was I so, what have I done that you would make such a mess of things? And so God's almost kind of having one of those moments where, where he sees the disobedience, he sees the, the, the pride that's built up in the people of God where they've said, God, we don't need you, we're going to go our own way, even though they kind of have this image of religion. There's still areas where there's an emptiness. And so God, in the beginning of Micah, Micah chapter 6, is saying, what, what have I done? And that's to say, what have I done that you would behave so poorly, that you would act like this? Their lives are not examples of following him. They've broken their covenant with God. And then God answers his own question. By reminding them of what he has done. We, I'll tell you what I've done. I freed you from slavery out of Egypt. And, and then once I brought you out of Egypt, I gave you leaders like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Leaders that lead us through this difficult time of transitioning from a nation in bondage and slavery to a nation in full freedom, to a land of their own. And, and while we're going through the wilderness... And while we were uh, coming to the promised land, there were nations who wanted to take advantage of you and, and outsmart you or just attack you. And, and my hand was over you in that, and I saved you, protected you in those moments. And when I brought you to the promised land, it, it was occupied, but I brought you victorious in battle so that you would have a land of your own. God's reminding them of, of what they would already have known. Here's what I've already done for you. It's just one glimpse He's reminding them, I am a God who saves his people. And as you look back through your history, you can see my hand at work. This is what I've done for you. And then if you keep reading, we get to the response of the people. It's found in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? In essence, saying, how should I respond to this? And bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The people respond with four questions. The first one's a generic one. All right, God, what do you require? What do you desire from us? If what we're doing is not what you desire, what, what is it that you want from us? And then they kind of unpack what it might be. They go to the law, which would have been, here's what... Uh, the system of sacrifices and offerings that you are to make, and then they suggest, is that what you want, burnt offering? This would fulfill a requirement in the law. And then you almost kind of wonder where they're going. Is, is this just simply hyperbole? Or is, you know, to have uh, an offering of thousands of, of, of rams and calves um, or, or tens of thousands of rivers of oil, I mean, it almost seems 
you couldn't even get that much. So either this has got to be everyone in it all together, unified, or it's just hyperbole. It's saying, hey, you know, if one burnt offering is not, do you want everything I got? Everything, you know, things I could never even dream of achieving. Do you want all that? And they get this point, do you even want the, a firstborn? And on one hand, as I was reading this, I, I wondered, they would know the history of Israel. They would know the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know the story where, where God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And I wonder, are, are they tying into that? Are they trying to say, hey, just like you, you asked this of, of Abraham, is that what you're asking of us? But they'd also know that God provided an atonement, a substitutionary atonement, uh, another sacrifice so that it wasn't Abraham's son Isaac who was sacrificed. It was a ram caught in the thickets by its horns. But then I thought about, like, well, with where the people are, I don't think their heart is one of, hey, let's remember all that God has done. Are you going to do something miraculous in our midst again if you ask us to offer our firstborn? I think the heart of the people is more one of, I don't know if sarcasm is the right word, but frustration. Also, what do you want from us? Do you want a burnt offering? Do you want thousands of burnt offerings? Do you want my son, my firstborn? There's frustration and anger. And it's their pride that I think is leading them to this point. See, their focus is on the letter of the law. What do we have to do, God, to satisfy you? You ever asked that question? You ever felt like God was angry with you? And just, just had that question. You almost got angry about the fact that you felt like God was angry. Like, hey, what, what do you need me to do to satisfy you? What do you need me to do to make you happy? Just name it and I'll do it. So the focus is on the letter of the law. And in that, they miss the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law of God isn't wanted to be a burden on the people of God. But it was one to guard them and protect them and draw them into relationship with God. And see, the last part is what they had missed. They, they, they were, you know, you could say they're, they're making some of these offerings and whatnot, but the actions of their lives showed that they were not in relationship with their God. Their pride was saying, we don't need God, we can go do it our own way. We'll, we'll, we'll follow these little bits, the letter of the law here, 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 but we're not really engaged in a relationship with God. This is just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They were so focused on following the letter of the law that they completely missed God. So when we're told to have a Sabbath, a day of rest, where you don't do anything, you rest from your work, what happens when Jesus comes on the scene and heals somebody on the Sabbath? I think most people are like, hey, that's amazing. There's something special about this guy. We should listen, we should look, we should lean in. But no, they say, you shouldn't heal on the Sabbath. You worked on the Sabbath. You're, you're going against the, the word of God. They're so focused on the letter of the law, they completely miss the spirit of the law. So Micah calls God's people to what God has already said before. <coughs> Micah saying, he has told you, O man, verse 8, what is good. This is stuff you've already heard, people of God, he's saying. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In one sense, he was summing up all that they'd understood of the law up to this point of what God had called them, his people to do. What does the Lord require? Do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Those who are sitting there saying, Steve, this is love kindness, and you said love mercy, or it says uh, do justice, and mine says act justly. Uh, depending on what translation you are, uh, it uses slightly different terminology. For the sake of this morning, we summed it down to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. 
one little tangent we need to take here before we continue is we need to look at the order in which this stuff has been brought up. God has already shown himself to be a God who saves, right? He, he said to Israel, hey, I, look at all that I've done. I, I rescued you out of Egypt. I rescued you out of the, 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 the wilderness. I, I brought you to the promised land. I gave you a place for your own, and, and we built this temple, and, and you're, you're, my, my, you're my people. I've I, I've already saved you. I've given you all this. Now, in light of what I have done, go and live this way. Live in response to what I have done, God is saying. Do justice because of what I've done for you. Uh, uh, Love mercy because of what I've done for you. Walk humbly with me because of what I've done for you. And it's not the other way around. But sometimes we get caught in this mindset of, well, I need to do all these things to earn God's favor. Right? I need to do all these things to be in, in, in good standing, to earn kind of God's attention or to be forgiven of my sin. But that's not the case. We, we, we can't fix that stuff on our own. Our, our, our life, uh, you know, we've already sinned, we've already gone, we've fallen short of the glory of God in one way or another. And so God is a God who saves. And he sends Jesus as a sacrifice. Jesus, be both fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life, free from sin. And so he, he was the only one who didn't deserve death. He didn't deserve separation from God, but he allowed himself to be crucified. He allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed and his life to be taken. Then he went to the grave. Now the third day, he overcame death and rose from the grave. And, and in that, he paid the price of death so that when we trust in him for the forgiveness of sin, our sins are washed away. It's nothing we did. It's not, we don't earn that. We just receive it. It's like many of us will experience this Christmas where you're given a gift. What did you do to earn that? We don't. We're just given that because someone loves us. They say, hey, I want to give you something nice. I want to give you a box of 1,000 cookies. It's on my list. Chocolate chip is preferred. It's a, it's a gift. It's just something that we receive. And so what, God, what we see in the, in the message of God is because of how God has loved you, because of what God has done, this is how we respond. We respond out of obedience. We, we respond justly and with mercy because of what God has done. This isn't trying to earn God's favor. This isn't trying to, God, how can I satisfy you? How can I make you happy? He's already satisfied in us when we come to him. He desires to be in relationship with us. And so it's just important to make that distinction we live our god we live our lives in response to god's favor not in an effort to earn his favor and so he says this do justice love mercy and walk humbly with our god do justice we already said it's to do right in your own actions and to do right by others as they are due so there's kind of two sides there's the things that you do that we would uh, uh, do things right to be right in our actions we'd be a person of integrity but it's also how we interact with others, that which we do for others, that we do right on behalf of others. Well, it's because, you know, just any relationship, that there's a way in which we influence each other's lives, or if it's stepping in for someone else because we're in a position of authority or power, but it's doing right in our own actions and doing right in a way that does right by others. Called the love mercy, love kindness. This word that's translated as mercy Actually, throughout Scripture, we see a couple different ways. Mercy or a loving kindness, a steadfastness. Uh, it's this Hebrew word, said, And it's this loving commitment. And probably one of the, the, the 
definers or one of the, the interesting points about this kind of love. It's a love that loves regardless of the other person's actions or attitude. This is, this is in one sense, you can say this is how God loves his people. So as people have been uh, disobeying, have been walking in, in their own ways, in their own pride, saying, God, we don't need you, and God still loves his people. And so wants to be in relationship with them. Regardless of what they do, he loves them. Has a steadfast love for his people. If you're a parent or if you're a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, if you've got you know, little ones in your life it's, it, or a child, it's kind of similar to the parental level. Like, hey, it doesn't matter what you do, I'm going to love you. It's a steadfast, it's a loyal love. The other piece of this loving mercy, this loving kindness, is it's a loyal love that doesn't ask, what do I get out of this? It's a very one-sided love. It's a love, hey, doesn't matter what I get, I'm going to love you. Doesn't matter how you respond, I'm going to love you. This is the kind of love that sees the personhood of each person and treats them accordingly. It sees someone as a person. It doesn't ask, how they're living, doesn't ask who they are. It simply says, I see you as a creation of God's who's been made in the image of God. I see you as another human, another person, and I love you because of this loving mercy. It doesn't matter. Anything else you could put on there as far as identifiers of other people, it doesn't matter. This loving mercy is a hasad kind of love. It's a loyal love. One that doesn't seek to ask, what do I get out of this? It's almost as if you're putting yourself in their shoes and saying, hey, I would long to be loved. And so we offer that love freely. What's interesting, though, as we look at justice and mercy, um, both are necessary, right? Theologian uh, Thomas Aquinas says this, mercy without justice is the mother of dissolution. Justice without mercy is cruelty. Basically saying, without justice, things are going to break down. They're going to fall apart but without mercy, any kind of justice we would offer, it simply becomes cruel. And when we look at this combination of justice and mercy together, we see this is really a beautiful picture of who our God is. I mean, the, the more I was thinking about this, the more I could, uh, different ideas and examples came to mind. Uh, see, we see in just the Old Testament law, if you read through some of the Old Testament law, you can see within there, on one hand, it, it's a law that, uh, of justice, it's a, uh, but it's also a law of mercy. As all the laws are, are, are to protect the weak and to protect the needy. So it's a law of right living, but it's also protecting and care for those who are weak or needy. If you're familiar with the story of Jonah, I think when you think of Jonah, if you're familiar with the story, we often focus on his experience in the belly of a great fish. Um, but I want you to think about the rest of the story. He, God sends him to, to Nineveh a place that I've been living in, in, in sin and, and apart from God. And he says, hey, bring my message to them and, and, and call them to repent. And so Jonah does. He does that a little bit begrudgingly. He, does, he doesn't want to go. He doesn't think they're savable. And so he goes and he brings justice. He calls uh, uh, the people of Nineveh to repent. You are against uh, the God Almighty and you need to repent of your ways. And, and then he walked away, kind of watched the city from afar, kind of thinking, okay, they're just going to implode on themselves. No way will they repent. But they did. Their hearts were softened and they turned to the Lord and they were spared judgment. God's mercy was upon them. What's so fascinating is that Jonah couldn't even accept that. He'd already experienced God's mercy in his own life and yet he couldn't accept that for someone else. He was struggling with this mix of justice and mercy. 
in Israel's story of turning away, if you just look at the story of the people of Israel, you see this pattern uh, both in a macro way and a micro way where, where they're following God and all of a sudden they kind of get complacent or they turn away, they start to go their own way in their pride, they go their own way, say, God, we don't need you. And there's consequences for that, uh, whether it be you know, taken over from uh, foreign nations or other, other destruction and things just kind of fall apart and all of a sudden uh, there's a way in which they get turned back to God and they're humbled and they say, God, uh, forgive us for our sins and he receives them back and then at some point in their history again they, they won't walk away from God and then they're humbled and they return back and you see this pattern over and over again in the history of the Jews and it's a picture of God's justice requiring them to to live and, and be holy but also mercy acknowledging hey and, and when you can't I'm, I'm there to to receive you back parable, parable the prodigal son you see a son who basically says to his dad, you're dead to me. I want my inheritance. And the father obliges. And he takes that and he, he squanders it all away and he's in, in his lowest of lows. And he thinks, you know what? My, my, my dad's servants are living better than I am right now after he blew everything. And so he goes home just begging to be one of the servants. Hey, can I, can I have the lowest of low jobs, dad? I, I just need, I need to get out of this pit. And, and so you can see this, this justice where, where because of his disobedience, because of his actions, where he ends up, and yet you see this beautiful picture of mercy that when he, run, when he comes home, the father runs out to greet him, and he puts his cloak on, and he puts his ring on, basically saying, this is my son, hands off. I know what he's done to me, and I know what justice would call us to, but I'm putting mercy all over this situation. I shared last week the story of the woman caught in adultery. And you see this beautiful picture of mercy and injustice. I'm sorry, mercy and justice. Where, where basically some religious leaders bring this woman to Jesus and say, hey, she's been caught in adultery. The law says we should stone her. What should we do? And, and he knows that's not their heart. Their heart is trying to, to, try to catch him in some kind of misstep. Because one of the clues is, okay, so it takes two to tango when it comes to adultery. And yet they only brought the woman before Jesus. And so he can see the injustice in this. They're not trying to, to have justice played out. They're trying to catch him in something. And he also shows her mercy. He says, okay, let whoever is without sin throw the first stone. And when they realize they have plenty of their own garbage in their life, they, they walk away. And when they're all gone, Jesus looks up at her and says, hey, where are your accusers? And, and they're all gone. And he says, you know, neither do I condemn you. And he says, here, this beautiful picture, I think, of mercy and justice Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. So he calls her to right living, to obedience, this justice peace. But he shows her such mercy in the face of her sin. My wife and I were talking about this, and, and she's excited about saying, the picture of the cross. It's probably the, the most beautiful story of justice and mercy. Justice demands bloodshed for the sins of man. Because we've gone against the word of God. Because we have, uh, have fallen short of the glory of God. The payment for that is bloodshed. The payment for that is a death. That's justice. So to satisfy the ways we've gone against the word of God is death. That's what justice would call us for. But in this beautiful, amazing picture of mercy, when justice is coming down, Jesus covers over us and says, I got this one. He says, take my life. I will lay down my life for yours. And he shows the world such a beautiful picture of mercy in the midst of justice. 
See, that the series has been called Descending into Greatness. Cause, yeah, I think we all desire to be great in some way or another, no? And this desire is what can fan the flame of our own pride, which gets in the way. Man, we like it when we get attention. We like it when we're, we're elevated. We like it when we can succeed in different things. And, and man, our, our pride just feeds off of that. It distorts who gets justice and who doesn't. If I give a spoiler alert on that, we're thinking about what does it mean to do justice. I think when our pride is running the ship, when our pride's at the helm, anyone who has wronged us, we think deserves justice. Anytime we wrong someone else, we think we deserve mercy, right? Someone does something to you, oh, they'll get theirs. But we do the same thing to someone else. Oh, I'm sorry, you know, give me grace, give me mercy. That's, 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 that's pride getting in where we, we can't see how that falls short. Pride even distorts mercy when we serve to try to get something out of it for ourselves. Maybe you have a motivation to be seen or recognized and that's why you're serving. I know it probably goes back a little too far for some of us, but other ones, maybe this is right in your sweet spot of, of uh, analogies, but if you're familiar with a show called Seinfeld, there's a character, George Costanza, who wants to give a tip at a restaurant. One of those kind of little jars. And he put a tip in, but he happened to put it in right at the moment where, where the chef was looking away. He didn't see him put the money in. Well, if he was truly giving just to be merciful, he would have just left it and walked away. But being George Costanza, he, he wanted to be known. And so he thought, well, I'll give it again. And so instead of pulling out another, you know, whatever, to tip, he tries to take his back out to put it back in and kind of just be seen. And, and, and that's what part gets seen, is him taking it out and then hilarity ensues. But are, are we serving just to get recognition, to be seen? See, that's how pride gets in and messes all that up. Both, both justice and mercy, it's messed up. And this is why I think it's so significant that we add this last part. That we would do justice. That we would love mercy as we walk humbly with our God. See, this is what puts it all in check. This is what guides it all. That we would move from a self-centeredness to a God-centeredness. And to do so in relationship with God. Because remember, if we just focus on the letter of the law, man, just, what's the minimum I need to do? But if we look at the spirit of the law, we see that God wants to be in relationship with us. We need to walk humbly with our God and move from a self-centeredness to a God-centeredness in relationship with him. I just want to close out with this. There's a few different ways in which I think we can walk humbly with God. I think we can walk humbly with God in our speech the things that we say and the ways that we talk. When it comes to social justice or any issue of justice in our world or it comes to uh, opportunities for mercy, I think sometimes we may talk about things one way behind closed doors, but then in public we talk about them in a different way. And you may say that the talk behind closed doors, well, that's not really what I mean. I'm just, I'm just joking or I'm just kind of being jovial about it. But no, this is, this is really what, what I believe. But I think the more we entertain it, the more we allow that, the more it bleeds out and it makes an impact in our life that we may not even be seeing. I, I, I try to teach my kids that um, you don't need to be afraid of words. My oldest will get off the bus and she wants to, to share the new swear she learned on the bus and She's trying to describe it. I'm like, you don't need to be afraid of words. You can just say, speak the word, and then we'll talk about you know, uh, the appropriateness of it and, and where to use it. You're not going to be, you only be afraid of words, but also words have meaning. And so as we decide what we're going to continue to use or not, you know, that, 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 that's how we can make different decisions in that. And so on one hand, I, I can teach that, but then I'm like, if I'm working in the garage and, and, I, and I bash my knuckles, 
you know, some, some words come flying out of my mouth that, that I'm not going to repeat here in church. And as I became more comfortable with that, I saw myself in just regular conversation. Again, there's scripture we can go to where Paul is, I'm going to make the argument, he's flat out swearing when he talks about a good imagery for what sin is and what to compare it to. Again, I'll save that for another Sunday. And so we don't need to be afraid of those words, but I found that as I was just allowing more of this in my conversation, I found it bleeding out from behind closed doors. And so think about that and things that, that go even further than just our language. But the way we talk about justice, the way we talk about other people who are in different situations than us. We need to begin by being humble in the way that we speak. We also need to be humble with our opportunity. We started this series talking about how all that we have is from God. If we struggle with pride and humility, we need to stop and acknowledge that all that we have from God, and the analogy I love when it comes to, to kind of hitting this point home, is imagine having this, a sandcastle building contest with God. And he said, great, here's the, here's the parameters, here's what we're going to do, here's when we're going to do it, Let, let's have this competition, bring your own sand. But if we took it a step further, oh, bring your own air to breathe while you're building it too. I mean, we can play this out. We see that all that we have, all is from God. And so then our choice is how do we steward it? How do we use it for his glory and for the good of others, right? But all that we have from God. So the opportunities that we have before us are a gift from God. And I'm with you. I'm the guy that wants to say, but I worked hard for this, or I busted my butt for that and this. And those are just from God. Those are, no, okay, so you steward those, stewarded those well. Be, be glad about that. Let's still acknowledge that all is from God. Where we were born, what time we were born into, what family we were born in, no matter how uh, uh, dysfunctional or no matter how fun. All of that is is from God. But he is a loving, sovereign God who reveals himself to us. and, And no matter where we enter this picture of history, he calls us to himself and he makes himself known and makes himself available. But so when we look at different opportunities that we have, when we look at authority that we may have over others or over different situations, we need to stop and acknowledge that this is not our own. This is from God. And so let us use it to do justice and to love mercy. You know, there's a story of an African-American teenager, actually it was a group of teenagers, but only the one that kind of gets highlighted in the story, who was... Um, kicked out of a mall in Tennessee recently. It's like November 3rd, I think, is when this happened. And, and there was a, a gentleman, about 59 years old, another black uh, gentleman, who, who kind of saw this taking place. He saw the security guard following these teens, and um, just his own words, he said, you know, as a black man, I see, you know, I see him chasing down a bunch of black kids, and just caught my eye. And basically what transpires is he tries to intervene on behalf of the kid, just kind of figuring out what's going on, and this ends up where both uh, the, the gentleman and the kid get kicked out of the mall, cops get involved, and all this kind of stuff. And the mall's stances, when they say what, what, what took place to bring all this about, was uh, they broke the code of conduct, and, and the teen was wearing a hoodie, a hoodie with the, with the hood up that was against their code of conduct. And it, and it was against their code of conduct, but there's, there's an aggressiveness there was a shortness, there was a lack of mercy. It was just very, um, and they already made their decision, this is what's happening. And when someone else tried to intervene on the teen's behalf, then he got pulled into that as well. And so what's interesting about that story is uh, uh, these, these four white ladies read this story and they said, this isn't right. 
so that they could see. You know, sometimes some stories go, oh, I see what's going on, but other stories you can just smell the stink a mile away. He said, there's something not right about this. So the four ladies gather together, and about rough, you know, it's a different day, but roughly about the same time of day, they all go to the mall. They're all wearing hoodies. Hoods up, hoods down. And what's interesting is there were times where they were addressed about their, their hoods being up, but it wasn't judgmental. It wasn't harshness. It was a kindness. Oh, ma'am, could you please take your hood off? And at no point was there ever a threat of being escorted out of the mall or being thrown out or having the police call. Two very different pictures. And so when we look at that, we have to acknowledge that there are opportunities that each of us have to do justice and to love mercy. There's opportunities where we can intervene, we can do something on the behalf of someone else. And this is just one example. And you know I don't pretend to have this all figured out. I'll tell you, that the more I read different accounts in the news of stories like that, I kind of begin to feel helpless. Like, what could I do? How can I intervene? And that's why I started first in our speech, in the way we talk about justice, the way we talk about mercy. But these ladies did something. They said, hey, let, let's bring light to this. Let's be humble in the opportunities that we have. So when you see yourself in a position of authority, when you see yourself in a position uh, where, where you don't face the same challenges that someone else is experiencing, we don't need to feel any shame, we don't need to feel any guilt, but it should stir us up to say, hey, from this position, let me help pull someone else up to the same place. See, our, our pride makes us feel like, you know, well, if I do that, it's going to lessen me. But that's just a lie. We know that. It's kind of the old adage, you, you don't make your candle any brighter by blowing out your neighbors. But humility says, we're going to help pull others up who haven't been given the same opportunities. Let's be humble in our opportunity, be humble in our speech. Let's be humble in the way that we, we motivate and care for those in need. I think sometimes, I don't know about you, but when I think about caring for others in need, do you ever do this? We say, well, yeah, I got needs too, though. Yeah, I see your need there. We can, we can do some, but I, I got some needs too. I think sometimes, again, that's our pride saying, hey, well, what about you? Are you cared for? Are you, do you have all this taken care of? And so when we talk about caring for those in need, we really are talking about everybody. But it's a matter of finding where is their need. One may have material needs. One may have spiritual needs. One may have relational needs. But let's be humble and caring for those in need, acknowledging that each one of us has need. James 1.27 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We see this call to care for orphans and widows. and In that time, it was those who had less opportunity and were greater danger of being overlooked. And so if we were to modernize that a little bit, I think it still applies. Orphans and widows. Honestly, I would put single mothers in there as well in our current modern day. Those who have uh, less opportunity or are more in danger of, of facing some of the difficulties of this world. And So how can we care for those? We just did a funeral a few weeks back of Ian Hansen. Ian leaves behind a widow. There's an opportunity to, to, to care for those in need, care for Sam and her kids and her family. There's other single mothers uh, that, that, that call Meadowland home that are in areas where we can use our opportunity to bless them and to be doers of justice and mercy. And sometimes doer, being a doer of justice means stepping in where you see injustice. I think another example of that, we think of orphans. Um, 
You can think of is everything from things like adoption and fostering or even safe families. We've talked about that a little bit in the past. And um, if you're interested, I encourage you to, to Google it and, and look up uh, what it's all about. But it's kind of short-term fostering where there's families that find themselves in need, whether it be for a week or whether it be for a year, um, where they're not going to be able to care for their kids. And you can step in and be a loving family for those kids. And it's a mess. Let's be honest about it. My wife and I are actually kind of starting some of these conversations, and it brings to light every reason why you shouldn't and every reason why you can't. Well, this is going to get difficult here. Well, how is this going to work? Okay, you know, if, 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 we, if there's a young child and we need another car seat, can we fit that in the car? Can we figure this out? And it's going to be a mess because life already is, you know. But let that not scare us away. Let's be a people who say, you know what, God, we want to be true and genuine to who you are and who we are. We want to be humble. We want to be people who do justice, who love mercy, and walk humbly in relationship with you. Let's pray. Father God, you are an amazing God. We love you. We thank you that you offer us forgiveness through Jesus. Father, if there's any of us here who haven't received that, who haven't trusted you for the forgiveness of sin, I pray that you would move in us, that your spirit would move in us and move us to the point of, of humbling ourselves to acknowledge our need to be forgiven of our sin. And then, Father, I know we all have different experiences in our lives and we, we, we go different places and we probably are witness to different injustices both on a local and a national level. But, Father, where we see injustices, whether it be uh, injustice uh, of a racial sort or injustice when it comes to gender or sexuality or any kind of injustice, Father God, let us be people who will not stay silent, but who will stand from our position of opportunity, the opportunity that we have of knowing that you are our God, of knowing that you love us and that you love others, of knowing that you are with us and that you empower us, Father. Let us be a people who are not afraid to do justice where justice is needed. Father God, rebuke a hardness of heart from within us. Soften our hearts so that just as we're eager to go and do justice, Father God, we bring with it a love for mercy, a steadfastness, a love that looks at those who are downtrodden, no matter what their intent is, no matter what their situation is, no matter uh, what brought them along our path, that we would say, how can I show them love? Father let us walk in this road where justice and mercy are traveling buddies. And let us travel with you, Father, as ultimately our heart in all this is that you would humble us as we walk in relationship with you. Father, I know as we do this that you move us to a greatness of knowing you, move us to a greatness of eternal life with you, and the greatness of being used by you to share the truth of Jesus with so many. Not our will, but yours be done. Amen.